0: Well, all Christian doctrine should be practical and it should influence the way that we live and common grace is no exception. Indeed, I would say that common grace is essential for Christian living today. And we're going to illustrate that by talking about five questions that uh, might puzzle you. They've puzzled me over the years and uh, your beliefs about answering these questions will have quite a profound influence on the way you live and the way you relate to non-Christians. So let's have a look at these five questions. There they are on the wall. Question number one. Why can non-Christians enjoy the good things of life? Question number two. Why is it that non-Christians... Can live good lives or perform brave deeds, make scientific advances or produce great works of literature or art? Question three Doesn't focusing on moral issues put people off Christianity? Question four Why should we bother with any social action at all? Why not just preach the gospel? And question five what right of Christians to impose their views on others? Now I hope that by the end of this evening, uh, we will come to have a bit of a clearer understanding of how we can answer those questions. And Common Grace plays a part uh, in understanding how we can answer those difficult questions. Along with the other lectures in this series, I hope that uh, the whole series called uh, Christian Influence in a Secular World will help us to influence the world from a Christian perspective. They really form the basis for the work that the Christian Institute does. And when you think about influencing the world for Christ, then sooner or later I think you have to get to grips with those sort of questions. How do you answer them? And uh, I'd like to uh, talk about common grace and at the end we're going to come back to those questions and we'll go through and look at the ways in which they can be answered. So first of all then we'll leave off the questions and we'll begin at the very beginning. Man was made in the image of God. We bear his likeness. It says in Genesis 1.27 So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Genesis one thirty one. But though we're made in the image of God, we are a fallen humanity. Every area of our lives, everything that we do, is tainted by sin and disobedience towards God. Because of Adam's fall, not only is humanity fallen, so too is the universe. The world, as Paul says, is in bondage to decay. Romans 8.21 You've probably often heard uh, talk of the doctrine of total depravity. There is no part of us, no action that we take, no thought that we think, which is not affected by the fall and by sin. But it's important to say that total depravity does not mean that all men are depraved in everything they do. Total means total in its scope, not, because of God's grace, in its depth. And I'm going to be quoting this evening from uh, John Calvin's Institute of Christian Religion. It was Calvin who really developed uh, the doctrine of common grace, although he never actually coined this term. He referred to the general grace of God. Uh, He also referred to people's special talents and abilities as God's special grace in common nature. And the Reformers generally used Latin terms, which I find difficult to pronounce, uh, gratia communis, to distinguish between grace given to all mankind and grace given to the elect, gratia particularis. And in this whole area, Calvin was responsible for returning the church to its biblical roots. But it's really uh, during this century, that the Dutch theologian, Abraham Kuyper, who has done much to point out the importance of common grace. So what is common grace? Let's look at some definitions. Wayne Grudem's uh, book on systematic theology was referred to last week. Grudem's uh, definition is that common grace is the grace of God... By which he saves people, by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. So it's not to do with salvation; it's those things that God's, that God gives to everyone, Christian or not Christian, uh, non-Christian, that are not part of salvation. Louis Burkhoff's definition: This is a grace which is communal, does not pardon nor purify human nature. And does not affect the salvation of sinners. It curbs the destructive power of sin. Maintains the moral order of the universe. Thus making orderly life possible. Distributes in varying degrees gifts and talents amongst men. Promotes the development of science and art. And showers untold blessings upon the children of men. So let's just think about those definitions. Common grace never saved anybody. It restrains sin. It does not save from sin. By God's grace, uh, the universe is sustained. And we, perhaps we can, may even say that the cosmic effects of the fall are restrained also by God's grace. Saving grace is the gift of God's salvation in Christ, which saves us from sin and gives us power over sin in our own lives. Saving grace is permanent and it's eternally given to those who believe the gospel. Common grace, on the other hand, is for all men but is only temporary. It's only for this life. Life without common grace would literally be hell. Hell is a place where there is no common grace. I want first to look at three aspects of God's common grace, working in men and women today. Then I want to look at common grace in creation. And finally, we'll come back to those five questions that I asked earlier on. First of all, man. Calvin looked around him and uh, he saw some remarkably talented people. Scientists, doctors, artists, magistrates, He saw people who were not Christians not Christians at all and yet who led exemplary lives and he asked himself how can this be as a very important uh, quotation that I want to it's quite a long one but it's an important one that I want to read out to you Calvin said in every age there have been persons who guided by nature have striven toward virtue throughout life I have nothing to say against them if many lapses can be noted in their moral conduct for they have by the very zeal of their honesty given proof that there was some purity in their nature these examples accordingly seem to warn us against a judging men's nature wholly corrupted because some men have by its prompting not only excelled in remarkable deeds but conducted themselves most honorably Throughout life. But here it ought to occur to us that amidst this corruption of nature, there is some place for God's grace. Not such a grace as to cleanse it, but to restrain it inwardly. For if the Lord gave loose rein to the mind of each man to run riot in his lusts, there would doubtless be no one who would not show that in fact every evil thing for which Paul condemns all nature is most truly to be met in himself so calvin is arguing there that uh, th- there are there can be non-christians who perform remarkably good deeds they may have uh, moral lapses but um, the very zeal of their honesty um, indicates the purity in their nature and uh, these examples as calvin says warn us that we that people are not wholly corrupted why? Because of God's grace. Uh, the consequences of sin have been restricted by God. And that has meant that uh, instead of uh, our own desires running the full reign, God has restricted it. Instead of uh, the, uh, the whole uh, sinful human nature running right, that's been restrained. And men are able to live good lives because of God's grace, because of God's power. Now, Calvin argues that God must restrain evil in the ungodly. God must do this, he says, because he foresees their control to be expedient, to preserve all that is. God has to do this, because if God didn't restrain sin then there would be no ordered life at all. It would not be possible. God must control sin to preserve all that is. And he says, some are restrained by shame, still others, because they consider an honest manner of life profitable, in some measure aspire to it. (coughs) Thus God, by his providence, bridles perversity of nature, that it may not break forth into action But he does not purge it it within. So God in his grace restrains human nature. If he did not, as Calvin said, every evil thing for which Paul condemns, all nature is most truly to be met in himself. We bear the image of God, though it is a marred image. I think it's helpful to look at three specific areas of common grace that that are working on men and women today. First of all, civic order and law. Calvin said that man is by nature a social animal. He tends through natural instinct to foster and preserve society. Consequently, we observe that there exists in all men's minds universal impressions of a certain civic fair dealing and order. So we need society. We need uh, ordered life. And There is that within within all men, which says we ought to have fairness and order in society. And even uh, thieves, uh, Calvin says, they break uh, legal restraints, but they know in their hearts that the law is good and holy. And the New Testament, of course, teaches that human government is established by God. Paul says in Romans 13:1, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities... For there is no authority except that which God has established. Now, the fact that we have police forces, the rule of law, judges, and courts mean, of course, that evil is restrained. We are all restrained, our human natures are restrained, and that is good. And I want to look particularly at one passage of Scripture from 1 Timothy 2. Let's just have a read of this. Paul writes to Timothy, I urge then, first of all, that prayers, requests, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And Paul is actually indicating in that passage that government restrains chaos. And that's actually for the benefit of the gospel. Paul enjoins us in praying for those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Civic order and peace is good because God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. And uh, so we see that we are to pray for the government so that there is this gospel freedom. Without government... Uh, the gospel would be hindered um, we fortunately have never lived in a sort of environment where there's total anarchy but if there's total anarchy it makes it very difficult for the gospel so we are to pray for the government because it's good that evil is restrained and there is order now God in his mercy does provide leaders who carry out his purposes and a very clear example of this is Cyrus uh, You remember the story of Cyrus who fulfilled uh, God's purpose in bringing uh, the children of Israel back to the promised land, as it were. And we read in Isaiah 45 that uh, Cyrus, who wasn't um, a Christian, was described, or of course he wasn't a Christian, he wasn't a a Jew, or uh, he didn't acknowledge God's ways, and yet uh, he was described in Isaiah as God saying to him, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor Though you do not acknowledge me, Uh, God used Cyrus to fulfill his purposes. And in our own time, I think we have to be very careful uh, about saying God worked through that leader in such a way. We should be very cautious about that. But I think we can say uh, that uh, someone like Winston Churchill... uh, was a man who was used by God now I have no reason to think that he was a Christian or a particularly religious man um, he did certainly talk about the fight between good and evil he, he talked about fighting to save Christian civilization but I believe that uh, whatever whether he was uh, had any faith or not, God actually used him and from a human point of view the whole thing was such a near miss it's interesting that just six months before Uh, Britain declared war on Germany, Churchill's local Conservative Party was seeking to oust him as their MP. Deselection proceedings were well underway. One local party member claimed that he had the backing of senior Conservative Party officials. (coughs) And uh, one Captain Jones at the time said this of Churchill, "'He is a menace in Parliament. "'I admire his brains and mental capacity,' but I decry his judgment. He has no judgment. And that was said six months before the war. Within a year, Churchill uh, became (coughs) Prime Minister. And as he joked at the time, he he became Prime Minister at the age at which he could draw his first old age pension, 65. I believe that God used a man like that, um, uh, even who didn't acknowledge necessarily God. I don't know uh, his own personal faith, but I believe that God can use a man like that quite remarkably so God in his common grace provides for civic order and law and there's three things I want to add as just as riders to this now, first of all there are many ways in which law and order can be provided Christians throughout the world live under dictatorships one party states totalitarian Muslim and communist states and they live in democracies do we value our freedom, which God has provided? Do we thank God for it? Do we pray for continued freedoms for the gospel? Or do we treat it lightly? There can be no doubt that 50 years ago, as a nation, we treasured our freedom and we went to war to defend the freedoms of others. Things are different now. Common grace is a gift. To whom much is given, much is expected and I think we can say that about our freedom as well that we enjoy Christians in the West treat their freedom so lightly second we have to ask uh, in a democracy who is the government when Jesus uh, said render unto Caesar what is Caesar's in Matthew 22 who is Caesar in our democracy well the answer is that it's all of us we elect the government Uh, the form of government in which we live Explicitly, although sometimes imperfectly, explicitly requires us to take a part. We can elect officials, we can elect um, uh, members of parliament, councillors, people to serve on school governing bodies, a whole range of ways in which we can take part. Now, if we do not take part, then democracy suffers. So in a democracy, we are Caesar, all of us. And then f- finally, and my final rider is of course that Human authorities are managed by human beings, and they're fallen. And if the state, including our democracy, requires what God forbids or forbids what God requires, then our duty is to obey God rather than man, Acts five, twenty-nine. So first of all, God in his common grace for man provides civic order and law. Secondly, he provides a conscience. Now, the Bible speaks of the importance of the conscience in restraining evil. And I'd like to look at another passage, uh, Romans 2. Paul says, When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. I wonder whether you've struggled with the meaning of that passage. The problem is that uh, there are two problems with it. One is that Paul is using the law in two senses, and the other is that there's a phrase that we use in the English language that actually means precisely the opposite than what Paul means it. First of all, Paul's using law in two ways. The first sense is where Paul says that Gentiles do not have the Old Testament law yet despite this they still keep the law's requirements they're a law for themselves now when we in conversation say about somebody they're a law for themselves that generally means they're they're, uh, unbridled lawless reckless uh, that sort of thing that's what we mean when we say someone's a law unto themselves but that's not what Paul means Paul means the very opposite he's saying uh, that Gentiles do not have the Ten Commandments of the moral teaching in the Old Testament they do not have that yet despite this they still keep the law's requirements they are a law unto themselves and the reason is their conscience non-Christians and Christians alike have that same disapproving voice when we do wrong it's put there by God our thoughts have the same sort of arguments that take place in a court of law Well, you have the prosecution and you have the defense. Our consciences accuse us and they also defend us when we know that we've done right. And our maker puts that there. He puts the requirements of the law in our hearts. Now, when we feel guilty, uh, we feel guilty because we are guilty. Our conscience condemns us. And there are two points to add here. Firstly, of course, only Christians can have their hearts transformed so that we have power to deal with sin. Power to deal with sin and to love God's laws rather than being a burden to us. Second, our consciences can be hardened by the habit of repeatedly ignoring them. And this is exactly what's happened in Western society. We pass more and more laws against God's law. And as a society we become hardened against God and his moral absolutes. Now I want to refer to this later. So, the first thing, the way in which God provides common grace, is civic order and law. Secondly, conscience. And now, thirdly, the intellectual and creative realm. Calvin uh, looked at those around him, and he saw some remarkably talented people who were not Christians. And he said this, When we do so condemn human understanding for its perpetual blindness... As to leave it no perception of any object whatever, we not only go against God's word, but we run counter to the experience of common sense. For we see planted in human nature some sort of desire to search out the truth to which man would not at all aspire if he had not already savoured it. Human understanding, then, possesses some power of perception, since, by its nature... Since it is, by nature, captivated by love of truth. So, Carlton was saying here that uh, you can't say about uh, human beings they can't uh, work out truth because they have this search for truth in them. And they wouldn't have had that search for truth had they not had it and then lost it because of the fall. And so, human understanding does have some power of perception. It's captivated by love of truth. And Calvin went on to describe all these uh, great uh, intellectual and creative gifts given to people who were religious and not religious, pious and impious. He said, whenever we come upon these matters in secular writers, let that admirable light of truth shining in them teach us that the mind of man, though fallen and perverted from its wholeness, is nevertheless clothed and ornamented with God's excellent gifts If we regard the Spirit of God as the sole fountain of truth, we shall neither reject the truth itself nor despise it wherever it appear, unless we wish to dishonor the Spirit of God. (coughs) For by holding the gifts of the Spirit in slight esteem, we contemn, i.e., that is, despise, and reproach the Spirit himself. Perhaps if you learn nothing else, you'll learn the word contemn, which means (coughs) despise. So Calvin is saying that uh, even secular writers, people who are not Christians at all, we should admire them when they have truth, when they have things to teach us. And if we don't do that, then we're despising them the giver of those gifts, and that's God himself. Calvin asks, shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation, an artful description of nature? Shall we say that they are insane? who develop medicine, devoting their labor to our benefit. And he adds, But shall we count anything praiseworthy or noble without recognizing, at the same time, it comes from God. So there are some remarkably talented uh, non-Christian doctors, uh, people who were uh, fine mathematicians, people who were were, uh, devoted in fine art, Calvin admired fine art, remarkable people. And uh, Calvin said we should admire them, admire their work, because the giver of those gifts is actually God. And Calvin referred specifically to creative gifts, and he cites uh, the example of Bezalel and Uh Ohilab, I can't, difficult to pronounce that word, who were craftsmen chosen by God. If you read Exodus 31, it talks of two craftsmen, and uh, scripture states that Bezalel was filled with the spirit of God with skill, ability and knowledge in all Mm. kinds of crafts Mm. now this is actually quite amazing stuff that the the Holy Spirit gives these gifts and of course the objection might be well, hang on a minute isn't the Holy Spirit uh, indwelling in believers and uh, let's read what uh, Calvin had to say about this Calvin writes, it's no wonder then that the knowledge of all that is most excellent in human life is said to be communicated to us through the Spirit of God. Nor is there any reason for anyone to ask, what have the impious who are utterly estranged from God to do with his Spirit? We ought to understand the statement that the Spirit of God dwells only in believers, Romans 8, 9, as referring to the spirit of sanctification, through whom we are consecrated as temples to God. Nonetheless, he fills, moves, and quickens all things by the power of the same spirit, and does so according to the character that he bestowed upon each kind by the law of creation. But if the Lord has willed that we be helped in physics, dialectic, mathematics and other like disciplines by the work and ministry of the ungodly, let us use this assistance. For if we neglect God's gift freely offered in these arts, we ought to suffer just punishment for our sloths. It's quite powerful, isn't it? And uh, one of the reasons why I'm using Calvin is in a sense um, uh, what Calvin was uh, objecting to was the Roman Catholic view that um, the mind was not affected by the fall. Well, the mind is affected by the fall. Even though there are these remarkably talented men uh, who have all these gifts that Calvin admired, of course, uh, the mind is still affected by the fall. It doesn't mean just because someone's a brilliant mathematician that they get everything right, or that their fallen mind uh, doesn't lead them to wrong conclusions. It will. Um, But uh, Calvin is clearly saying here that God gives these gifts to men, these natural gifts, and we ought to give thanks for them. Scientific advance and technological achievement are possible because of common grace. Mm -hmm. Christians and non-Christians alike benefit from from this. Let's, uh, a different quote this time, this time from Kuiper. Kuiper said Calvin esteemed art in all its ramifications as a gift of God or more especially as the gift of the Holy Ghost. That he fully grasped the profound effect worked by art upon the life of emotions, that he appreciated the end for which art had been given, that we might glorify God and enable human life and drink at the fountain of higher pleasures, yes, even of common sport so uh, all these things back given by God even people's abilities in sport their physical skills and abilities given by God for his glory so there we are three ways in which common grace works in men and women civic order and law then we looked at conscience and lastly at people's intellectual and creative abilities now I want to turn to creation The Bible teaches that um, the creation itself is affected by the fall. The soil, as it says in Genesis 3.18, the soil now produces thorns and thistles. The ground was to be cultivated by painful toil. Paul says in uh, Romans 8 that the creation is in bondage to decay and is subjected to frustration. Now one day, as we know, the creation itself will be brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. That will be one day. Now, nature is affected by the fall. There are natural disasters. There are earthquakes and there are typhoons. Animals have hostility towards other animals and often towards human beings. One day things will be different. Nature will be at peace. Let's just look at one Uh, quotation from Isaiah one day uh, the wolf will live with the lamb the leopard will lie down with the goat the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them the cow will feed with the bear their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox the infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put its hand into the viper's nest They will live and they will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's a picture of nature being at peace. And we can't imagine that now, can we? Nature is not at peace. But one day, in some way, we find difficult to understand. No doubt we could have a whole lecture, and I'm sure I wouldn't give it, on uh, (laughs) interpreting that passage, but it's a picture of nature being at peace. But we don't see that now. And the remarkable thing, though, is despite uh, the fallenness of creation, despite that, the natural world is still a beautiful place. There is still pattern and order in nature. God, the intelligent designer, made it that way. I used to enjoy, uh, as a mathematics teacher, drawing out patterns in nature and it's actually remarkable the detail of the patterns in nature extraordinary and uh, it's there because God designed it God made it that way and we know that Jesus Christ himself was co-creator with God the Father and he is now sustainer of the universe <laughs> Hebrews 1.3 the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Paul says in Colossians, All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Unbelievers and believers alike enjoy the beauty of the world. We all enjoy God's provision the rain, the sunshine, the seasons, food, uh, all those things. And we have to remember that, uh, as Jesus said, God is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. And it's for this reason, Jesus says, that we are to love our enemies in Luke 6. Jesus said of the Father, He caused the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Matthew 5. God, in His mercy, kindness and love, gives all humanity things to enjoy Paul, uh, when he was at Athens, actually used this as as an argument to refer to uh, God's existence. When he uh, went to Athens, he said uh, to the men of Athens, Yet he himself, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts. With joy, Acts 14. So these were non Christians, people who were not believers, who knew joy from some <coughs> human thing, ordinary human things of life. That God had given them joy because of these ordinary things of life. And as we read earlier on, uh, Psalm 145 The Lord is good to all, He has compassion on all He has made. And it says in the psalm, You open your hand and satisfying the desires of every living thing. So God is the great giver, the great provider. God gives all of these things for our good, even for our joy, even for the joy of non-Christians. And we see it all around us that uh, people do enjoy these good things, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm going to be talking about that now as we turn back to our questions. Uh, We come right back to the beginning, and I'm going to try and hopefully show how what we've talked about before actually applies and uh, how it will actually make a practical difference to us. So let's come back to those those questions. We've talked about common grace at work in man, civic order and law, the conscience, uh, and at work also in man's uh, creative abilities and artistic abilities. We've talked about creation, God at work through his grace in creation. And now with that background, I want to turn back to those questions if we can perhaps have the first slide again. So the first question is why can non-Christians enjoy the good things of life? Why can they enjoy the good things of life? Well the answer is because the good things are good. God made them that way. God provides rich things for us to enjoy. He has given us a conscience To restrain our behaviour. He also provides two principal institutions. For the good of all men. And we've talked about one of them. We've talked about government. But there's also another one that I haven't mentioned. And that's the institution of marriage in the family. Many non-Christians find great happiness in their families. And there's nothing wrong with this. That's exactly what God intended. And uh, there are good things. And non-Christians appreciate them. As good things. In Galatians 6-7 uh, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Now a non-Christian man who is faithful to his wife and his children who does not cheat at work will experience a measure of blessing in this life. None of these things will save him. None of these things can earn any merit with God But there will be a measure of blessing in this life because marriage is given by God for the good of mankind and it works in practice. Now, of course, uh, the institution of marriage can never fill the place of God, the family can never be a substitute for peace with God. But there is a measure of blessing when people follow God's laws even though, even though they're not Christians. It won't save them. It won't lead them to earn any merit with God at all. But in this life, it will give them a measure of blessing. And of course, the tragedy of today is that men and women are rejecting God's provision. They're rejecting God's provision of marriage. And we know that uh, broken homes are having a terrible uh, impact on children today. We've seen now, uh, we're going to be talking about this in, in, a, in a moment, how uh, people have in our nation rejected saving grace, but they're now going further, going further and even rejecting those good things which God has given for non-Christians to make life actually possible. This the second question. Let's turn to this. Why is it that non-Christians can live good lives or perform brave deeds Make scientific advances, or produce great works of literature, or art. Well, the answer is because of God's grace. But I, I think it's very important to uh, to say something here about all these things that, that non-Christians can do that are just marvellous, that are really uh, that are really uh, uh, brilliant pieces of, of art, wonderful uh, scientific experiments, or brilliant scientific theories. Mm-hmm. I want to add a very important rider, and that's that the territory they're working on is God's territory. It's not their own territory. It's not a neutral territory they're working on. It's God's territory. And they couldn't be those wonderful artists, those wonderful scientists, but for God's restraining hand. And there's a quote I want to use here by a man called Cornelius Van Til. He says the non-Christian scientist must be told that he is dealing with facts that belong to God. He must be told that his own mind, with its principles of order, depends upon being made in the image of God. He must be told that if it were not for God's common grace, he would go the full length of the principle of evil within him. He would finish iniquity and produce only war. His very acts of courtesy and kindness... His deeds of generosity, all his moral good is not to be explained therefore in terms of himself and the goodness of his nature but from God's enabling him to do these things in spite of his nature. So we need to say to the scientists well if it weren't for God you wouldn't just sin it would be war if it wasn't for God. There's no way that if God didn't restrain yourself, your own human heart, if God didn't restrain your heart, then the consequence would be you wouldn't be a scientist at all. There would be no science done because of it's God's uh, gift, it's God's grace, common grace, that actually enables orderly investigation to continue and for the scientist to do his experiments. It's God's territory on which the scientist is working. Let's turn to our Third question now. It's a question that uh, is often raised and uh, I make no apology for being an apologist for the uh, for the Christian Institute and for some of the uh, very important beliefs that I think that we ought to be standing for today. The question is often asked, doesn't focusing on moral issues put people off Christianity? I was at a conference Uh, last week and uh, this very question was asked and it's often asked if you talk about moral issues won't you put people off becoming Christians well I actually think the very opposite is the case and I'm going to explain why many Christians believe that if we talk about moral issues issues of right and wrong and if we campaign for them in society then we're preaching a doctrine of salvation by works but the opposite is true because the danger of preaching a watered down gospel is when we do not deal with God's laws. People live in God's world but not according to his rules. They have rejected God, they defy God in the way they live, that is why they need a Saviour. Paul uh, uh, people Paul talked earlier on about people having joy, non Christians having joy, and there are many things that God has given. ...for us to enjoy because of his common grace. Yet, uh, isn't there the danger that if people just take from God his common grace and they do not give thanks to him... ...then as Paul says, they neither glorify him as God nor give thanks to him. Not giving thanks or praise to God is a moral issue. So too is going a stage further and rejecting God's common grace altogether... We've rejected God's saving grace as a nation. Now we're rejecting God's common grace. God's common grace. That's a very dangerous state to be in. We are living our lives, even rejecting what God has provided for our good. Marriage is being rejected. Concepts of moral absolutes are being put aside in a legal system, which is gradually becoming infatuated with rights. I don't know whether you heard... um, just two weeks ago about uh, the story of P.C. uh, Blakelock and the award of £50,000 to somebody who wasn't his killer but who did happen to be a murderer. All these sort of cases make you wonder what sort of world you're living in. And our concept of justice is actually changing. And uh, we are cutting loose from some uh, Christian basis. Well, when we're talking to non-Christians, I believe we have to preach the law before we preach Christ. Otherwise, uh, in what sense can people say that they need a saviour? If they do not believe that they need to be saved, what do they need to be saved from? And the problem with uh, so much gospel preaching today is that it preaches the gospel as meeting personal needs and helping people fulfil themselves. Now, of course, in a very real sense, the gospel does precisely those things. But there's a very important difference between felt needs and real needs. People may feel unfulfilled, they may feel lonely and without a purpose in their lives. But if we preach that the gospel uh, meets those those needs, perhaps we preach that the gospel will deal with loneliness, well, what's to happen if if a non-Christian man goes and gets married? Uh, Would not common grace, in a measure, provide a, a healing of that loneliness... So what's the use of the gospel to them if the gospel is only about dealing with loneliness? I want to talk about the law and the role of a law in awakening people to the fact that they need a savior. Paul writes in Galatians 3.24, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And the authorized version translates this as The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. There are many occasions where Jesus Christ used the law to challenge people to faith. He didn't follow many of the evangelistic techniques that are popular nowadays. He seemed to break the rules. There was that rich young ruler. Then there was the Pharisee who asked, what must he do to inherit eternal life? And I'd just like for a moment to consider the parable of the Good Samaritan, as it's called. Luke records in chapter 10, Jesus was asked by the Pharisee, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. When Jesus said this to the Pharisee, Luke records... But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus. And who is my neighbor? And it was then that Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And the punchline was. Go and do likewise. But remember what was the question asked. The question asked by the Pharisee was. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' uncompromising answer to the Pharisee demonstrated. That there was no class of people to which the Pharisee could refuse to love. He meant what he said love your neighbour as yourself. And so the whole parable actually condemned the Pharisee. But of course, it also condemns every one of us. We do not love our neighbours as ourselves. We are morally bankrupt and in need of a Saviour. And Jesus uses the law to help the Pharisee understand his true state. His true state. Uh, which is uh, described by Paul in Galatians 3.24. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. Jesus, in an uncompromising way, stated what the law was. Love your neighbor as yourself. He told the story, which it was clear. The, The Pharisee did not love his neighbor as himself because he tried to justify himself and ask, and who is my neighbor? The phrase put in charge, which I quoted, the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, is actually the Greek word pedagogos. It literally means a guardian or a slave whose duty it was to conduct boys to and from school and to supervise their conduct. John Stott points out that pedagogos was not so much a teacher as a disciplinarian, often harsh to the point of cruelty. So the law is a pedagogos. The law drives us to Christ to seek salvation. And this is a clear argument against those who say that emphasising Christian morality puts people off the gospel. Paul takes the opposite view. Now of course we have to be uh, sensitive but what I'm saying is that people need to know that they have actually broken God's laws and they need to be told that they need a saviour. And it's not a matter of personal fulfilment although course the gospel is uh, fulfilling it does fulfill people but actually people are in need of a savior because they've broken God's laws we must love our neighbor uh, just as the Samaritan did and when we uh, speak up for Christian truth when we I hope we in our own way we speak up for truth with people we know when even we campaign for marriage when we argue the case with people at work or whether we write a letter or Whatever we do, whether we ring a a phone-in program or uh, wherever we talk about a a Christian issue, when we campaign for marriage perhaps, then in a measure we declare what is right and what is wrong. Uh, People are well aware what you're saying. uh, And we will be declaring in a small measure God's law and so helping drive people to Christ in the knowledge that they need a saviour. So the law... Uh, doesn't put people off Christianity it puts them on to knowing that they need a saviour and it drives them to Christ fourthly then why should we bother with any social action at all why not just preach the gospel well God doesn't do that why doesn't God just uh, forget about the rain and the heavens and all these wonderful things that he provides why is the world in color, why not in black and white? Uh, why are all these uh, wonderful things there? Well, God, in His love, provides these things. And uh, so we should not be any different. We should not be less loving than God. God sends the rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Uh, his common grace provision makes ordered life possible. People will perish without saving grace. Certainly in the next life. But in this life, there will be no ordered life without God's common grace. We must preach the gospel, but we must also obey Jesus' teaching about being salt and light in the world, that men may see our good deeds and praise your Father in heaven, Matthew 5. Love and obedience uh, to Christ is the motivation for seeking to care for other people. And as James says, faith without works is dead. Man is saved by grace through faith alone, but that faith is always accompanied by repentance and good works. And finally, perhaps the toughest question of all uh, that, that people often raise, what right have Christians to impose their views on others? We always have that on uh, our application forms for posts at the Christian Institute. It's a very interesting question. It gets people to really uh, say what they think. Man cannot live uh, without God's common grace. The unbeliever benefits from receiving God's grace in this life, his common grace, although it will not save him in the next. When we fight for... uh, Christian standards in society we are witnessing to the truth but we are also showing non-Christians how to live we're calling them back to accept God's common grace now it won't save them if if we talk about marriage it's not going to save anybody not going to help them earn any merit with God but to an extent it will make them uh, a more fulfilled person a happier person in this life it's not going to save them But it is actually better for people who are not Christians to be faithful to their wives. It's better for them to have a better quality of life. Not going to save them. But that is the way that God has made us. Uh, God has laid uh, down uh, from creation that is the way which is actually best for us in our relationships. And so when we point people to that we're merely pointing to people uh, what is actually best for them. Now we... uh, when we've campaigned on marriage and the family, uh, we can argue that divorce damages children, and so it does, uh, normally. If, by our campaigning, we can persuade people that perhaps uh, the divorce law should help people think twice, then that's a good thing. And uh, some marriages will be saved, and uh, people will benefit. And that's exactly what we tried to do back in 1996, and, and in a measure we succeeded. But all our campaigning was for the good of non-Christians though they don't necessarily accept what we're doing they don't understand it but it is in fact for their good. And the problem today is that non-Christians don't know what was good for them. Uh, There was a time a while ago when uh, people would reject uh, say a hundred years ago they would reject the notion of God they would argue that it's just possible to have morality without having had any notion of God. Well, uh, that was one stage removed from, one stage of rejecting God. Now we've gone another stage, and we've said, OK, well, we, we can reject God, and we can invent our own morality. And the trouble with that is that you will not have society. You will not have a stability in society. And we've seen this, haven't we, uh, the crime rate going through the roof. Uh, it's gone up since I, I was born. It's gone up ten times since I was born. The divorce rate going through the roof. And I can remember when um, my parents would point out somebody, there goes somebody who is divorced. It was such a rarity. Oh, but now it's commonplace. So all of these things have happened. God, uh, people are rejecting God's common grace. And the great danger is there, is that our society is in danger. Uh, the order in our society is in fact in danger when we reject God's common grace, when we reject his provision. And democracy has to be underpinned by common values. And uh, without those common values, uh, then democracy will not be possible. And of course that's the serious state uh, in which we are in. So I want to end then. Um, we've looked at those five questions. I hope that you can appreciate the ways in which common grace can actually help answer those questions. And I just want to end by thinking about what common grace should give us. I think common grace should give us a sense of thankfulness to God for all the rich blessings of this life which God has given. When we say grace uh, before our food, we're giving thanks for what God has provided. And we should give thanks for all the wonderful things that God has provided. They are not to be rejected. They are to be enjoyed. And we are to thank God for them but we are also accountable. One day, there will be, uh, uh, we have to give a record of our stewardship, of what God has provided. There will be a sense of accountability about the ways in which we're used, uh, we have used God's gifts. And then also, there needs to be an awareness that even these good things, everything that is good, can be twisted and corrupted by sin. They must never be Used in place of God, of course, everything uh, the mind, everything we enjoy can be twisted by sin and I hope that uh, as a result of what we've uh, talked about tonight, there will also be and there can also be a new determination uh, to stand up for what is right we're actually doing it for the for the good of those who are not Christians who are not believers we're actually uh, when we stand up for what is right, we are seeking actually. To help them. To help them live uh, more fulfilled and uh, better lives. Though it won't save them necessarily. But it will point them the way that Paul pointed those uh, men at Athens. He he pointed uh, God's good gifts. He he referred to those and pointed to God actually. As the provider of those things. And we can point people to to God as as the provider of all these good things. So... um, Thank you for listening, and uh, no doubt we may have some interesting questions later on.
1: Thank you very much indeed, Colin. We've been going for an hour. And Colin Colin has very bravely done what I wouldn't do uh, before such a distinguished and knowledgeable audience, asked for questions and comments but obviously seriously uh, there is a short period of time uh, for people to do that if they want to to amplify what he said to illustrate what he said um, the floor is yours anyone like to, to say something
2: of sin when someone is born again um, whilst we have our nature and yet some would say that with being born again that then you are renewed in a very particular way how is it then that, um, yet, we, you know, we do know people who sin in a very, very serious way and perhaps uh, more than once? I mean, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, uh, what sin, but, but I'm talking about a very serious sin. And yet, they're born again in relation to, to, to grace.
1: Oh, cool. and that's Galatians 5. I think we heard of that last night. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, there's no never perfect justice in this life. A man reaps what he sows. Uh, I think if, if there's a Christian seriously sinning and going on in sin, they ought to watch out, um, because uh, God will not have that. But um, there will not be perfect justice in this life, and um, we will have to wait uh, for that. But in a measure, we we do often see uh, this men reaping what they're sowing and uh, although we don't see that perfectly and um, uh, it's true that uh, rather like the man in in Psalm 73 we look at the uh, ungodly and we say well they're doing pretty well aren't they Um, what a marvellous life they are leading why didn't I jack in being uh, a Christian and we're often tempted and we see perhaps a Christian who uh, uh, is obviously off the rails, and yet seem, everything seems to be going right for them. Well, we must wait for God's uh, judgment. We must use His word as the, as the assessment. And uh, you know, a man reap, well, reaps what he sows, and uh, we must leave that to God to fulfill His word. And, but often God does uh, have a measure of that even in this life, and uh, particularly if we are a Christian. I think God sometimes makes our way very hard if we uh, ignore Him, and if we we do. Same.
1: would you agree that the no. common grace that has to unto all men goes right back to creation I say if you don't agree but I am putting the proposition that the common grace that appears that has appeared unto all men goes right back to creation when God created man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and became a living soul so there's a relationship established there between man as part of the whole creation as distinct from the animal creation who was given a living relationship as a living soul with God. Is that the source of the common grace that we've been discussing? And another question I'd like to raise just in a second. <laughs> right. That was the easy one, was
0: it? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, common grace is strictly only... I mean, when man wasn't fallen, God still provided everything. But after the fall, uh, we need God's grace uh, to restrain us, to to make orderly life possible. And um, I have argued something which is very, uh, I I wouldn't say I argued it, I would say God's word argues, that it's actually the Holy Spirit. Uh, You talked about uh, men receiving the breath of God. Uh, That it's actually the Holy Spirit which uh, gives men, Uh, These gifts doesn't save them, doesn't work in their own hearts to uh, sanctify them in any sense. But God is giving uh, these gifts uh, to men. And they, of course, are ungrateful for them uh, most of the time. But we should give glory to God because he has um, restrained our human nature so that we can produce these wonderful things, uh, wonderful architects and uh, artists and people who can write and so forth, God has provided those things, and he works by his Holy Spirit. But I'm not saying that anybody is a believer because of those things. No, I'm not saying that. And uh, I'm most definitely saying that uh, every aspect of man is fallen. So even you have somebody who's, who's a, a really brilliant uh, mathematician, physicist, whatever it be, poet, fine artist, or whatever. Um, they are fallen human beings, and that will come out in what they, what they actually do. So common grace is very important particularly after the fall but I think you can argue even in the pre fallen state then God himself was provided uh, for for men there. But Of course there was no distinction then. Adam and Eve were, were uh, believers until the fall. We can think of them as believers anyway. But after the fall the thing about common grace is that it applies to everyone whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. We need it just as much as the next person does. And... Uh, Whereas saving grace only, of course, applies to the believer. I don't know whether that answers your question now. You had a second question,
1: uh, and I'd be generous. You can ask it now. (laughs) I I was referring to the first question why is it that non Christians appear to enjoy the good things of life? A much more difficult question than that to ask is why is it that Christians sometimes give the impression that they're unable to enjoy it? Exactly. (laughs) Well, exactly. you want to answer the question as well as asking? (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: (laughs) I can remember when I was a a student, and I know Evangeline remembers this, there was a book uh, by, I think it was uh, MacDonald, I can't remember his name, called Disciple, True Discipleship. And it basically said you had to sell your house, everything, to give to missions. And, uh, you know, it's quite unnerving if you're a student. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but that isn't right. That isn't right. God would not have that so. that There is life. There are things that we can enjoy. Now, we are accountable. But we can enjoy those things, and so we should. And uh, reading, I must say, reading Calvin, uh, he, his uh, press... Uh, does not give him uh, the true image of Calvin. He has been made out to be someone who was all in favor of uh, smashing art and everything. That's not true. He actually said some quite remarkable things um, and talked quite clearly about enjoying and valuing uh, those things by non-Christians. And he even said that if we don't do that, we are guilty before God. We will be accountable like the slothful man. And... uh, so I think that's exactly right. And we should uh, enjoy ourselves. We should enjoy and give thanks for all those things that God has provided.
1: But Charles, was your hand up or, or, or not? Or No, there's a hand behind me. Sorry. Yes.
3: Um, yeah, I, I find it difficult uh, uh, to understand um, if, if human beings are operating on the territory of God, why does God only refrain people to a certain extent to... Uh, when it comes to evil? Um, and, and why doesn't
2: he uh, freedom completely? <coughs> well, that's
0: a very difficult question. And I think it, it's because of our freedom. We have freedom. I think common grace is the minimum, irreducible amount of grace that is needed for human life. If there was no grace, we would have destroyed ourselves as a race long ago. But I see common grace as the... Uh, it's not just the minimum, it's more than just the minimum. There are many more things that God has given us, almost uh, in a sense which is uh, extremely generous of God, that God has given us many things. But there does need to be a restraint. Without that restraint, we will literally destroy ourselves. And, and so there is a tension there between freedom, isn't there, and uh, God uh, stepping in. Um, but without God stepping in, there would be no humanity. Uh, but there is a very big tension there, isn't there? And I'm not sure there's an easy answer to that question. Perhaps David's got the answer. David,
1: no, <laughs> David. I don't have an
3: answer. Is this is another question, is it? Yeah. It's another, well, it's coming back to the first question really, which has to do with this feeling that we have that it would be very convenient if there were a simple relationship between good deeds and good outcomes and bad deeds and bad outcomes in this life. And I find it helpful, the teaching that Paul gives in Romans chapter 1, where he says that God gave them up. It doesn't say God made bad things happen to them. It's, it's though God said, if that's the way you've chosen, then I will let you work out the consequences. Now, now if that means that someone's decided they want to be a billionaire, well, then they'll work out the consequences of that. And God's judgment on them, you might argue, or part of it, would be the success. In achieving that, but without him, yeah. that's the. And I find that awesome actually. That his his wrath is expressed by actually allowing <laughs> men to work out the consequences yeah. of their will uh, uh, set against his. Uh, and though in, in the world's terms, uh, we might well say, well, good things happen to them. In absolute spiritual terms, the outcome actually was bad, and was his judgment.
0: Yeah. We don't know what people are like when they're alone in their room, do we? And uh, we uh, I, I remember uh, Ian and I were talking about this earlier today. There was a, a photocopier salesman who came to sell us a photocopier. And uh, just uh, we got talking, and uh, it was quite a hard uh, period of negotiation uh, going on, as you'd expect, uh, with the Christian Institute trying to save money. And... Um, and then when, when we'd signed all the papers uh, he just sort of suddenly started talking about you know I've never had a father and my father left me and you know, all this and everything came out turned out that he had been uh, going along to Welbeck Road uh, church for a while years ago and everything came out and yet you would think he was a totally hard sort of salesman totally professional and yet all of that came out and he said you know I've, I really cannot cope with that it. it's a very big thing and uh, I think that is true, and uh, it's been interesting. You talk about uh, God gave them over, and uh, they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Of course, that's applying to homosexuality. It is a fascinating thing, but true that homosexuals tend to have degrees, and more often, more likely to have postgraduate degrees, more likely to have a better job. Um, that is true uh, from from the studies that have been carried out, even by homosexual researchers, and. Um, The judgment of God is in fact in what they're doing and in fact that it will not work, will not fulfill and there will be this continual um, lust for more and it will never satisfy in the way that God's proper provision for human relationships will do so and uh, we have to reserve our judgment, don't we? And uh, trust uh, that God will fulfill his word. Thank you, David. Yes, the lady, over lady, yes. In
2: fact, the question that was asked before, uh, thinking in terms of, of common grace, how it uh, acts as a constraint, restraint in society, that is easy to say here in our country, where up to the present time we do have freedoms. But it's very different in totalitarian states. And you think that in terms of history of the uh, Hitler regime in Germany, and where in fact back to say, where was
0: common grace? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Would that be common? Yeah. Well, uh, Morris Robertson, uh, an autumn lecturer a few years ago, talked about the 1960s in Britain being a, a withdrawal of God's common grace. And uh, we thank God that we were not living in the, in the times of the Third Reich. But um, we are living now. And um, in our lifetimes, we have seen so many things go wrong and uh, we wonder why and uh, we wonder why god would have it so but all we can say and we can look at this just perfectly rationally and say men are rejecting the way that god said that we should live and it's not working i mean the new design for living the new forms of the family and everything are just not working crime rates are going through the roof and so we can say in in that way that looking at that that there is a consequence of, of, of men actually, men and women actually rejecting God. And, and a lot of these things, uh, they, they are mysteries. They're not easy to to answer. But I know that we can pray. I know that uh, certainly at the time of Germany, there was, there was I'm sure, a longer build-up. There was liberal criticism of the Bible. It was torn to shreds decades before. And the church was uh, very little restraint, uh, on what was going on, very clear that uh, Hitler was totally anti-Christian in the things he was saying, quite explicitly so. And we know that the shameful silence of Christians um, before the rise of Hitler. And I just have to say, well, what will they think of us in a hundred years' time? What will they think of us? You know, there there are um, they weren't aborting babies in Hitler's time, you know. And they may have been um, having euthanasia programs, but they weren't aborting babies, and perhaps they would have thought that would be horrific. But we're doing that nowadays, and um, I don't know, maybe we have to look at things from God's eyes and say, well, perhaps we're not so healthy. We do have incredible freedom, it's true, and we must give thanks to God for that. But there are many Christians who do find it very difficult when they stand up. It's a lot harder now than it used to be, and uh, you know, we do hear of cases of Christians who... Um, just a few months ago, there was a teacher who, who seemed, who appears to have been sacked purely because he was a Christian. Um, and you know, there will be more cases like that. And it's, it behoves us actually to be faithful. Um, that's what God requires of us. And uh, we don't, we can't predict the future. Uh, we don't know what will happen, but we we know that we must be faithful. And the future is up to God. And uh, anything we receive from God is a mercy. Uh, We must be very thankful to him for all that we have received, which is far more than we what we deserve.
2: Could I just mention about arts? You say about arts. I think it's very interesting that horrendous picture in um, New York, I think it was. Um, It was it was blasphemous, you know, where they closed the um, the hall, I think, or where it was being held. This this uh, of uh, of the of uh, Virgin Mary, Mm -hmm. I think. Do you know 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 exactly what you mean? I
0: mean, the funny thing was that Hitler had had just recently had an exhibition of degenerate art and you look at that and you think, that's pretty mild that's what Hitler banned I mean, that's pretty mild, but our art really is degenerate, isn't it? And uh, some of the things that are going on uh, today uh, are really appalling, and uh, they should appall us, and um, uh, recently uh, Christians in Northern Ireland have taken a stand against Gilbert and George and, uh, you know, I heard them on the radio and I quite admired them, the way they they put their case but we must not be uh, like the frogs who uh, get boiled in uh, hot water the temperature rises and rises and they they are literally boiled to death and uh, we must be aware of our environment and uh, seek to be faithful Uh, I'm sure that if you do stand as a Christian then you will discover the truth of uh, God's word that... uh, you will meet opposition. And uh, maybe there there isn't as much freedom as, as perhaps we think there is. Um, when we start standing up, we discover that, I think. Thank you, Colin. I think
1: I'm going to call this part of the meeting to a halt um, and to express at this point um, our appreciation to Colin for his very thoughtful and deep insight into common grace and for the way in which he's answered what are, in one sense, some unanswerable questions which this side of heaven we shall not know the full answer to. Uh, Colin, uh, you could detect from the response of the audience that they did what they ought not to have done, uh, and which has been forbidden for the last few years. For theological reasons, which I'll discuss with people later if they wish to, uh, they actually applauded. Uh, or some dead and uh, that's an expression I think of everybody's uh, uh, appreciation uh, of what you've given us tonight and I just want to say thank you very much indeed on behalf of everyone for doing that.